0: Hi, and welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast, Episode 1, An Epic Tale or 2. As I mentioned in my introduction, the intention is to deal first with the earliest myths, legends and facts of our favourite Peloponnesians, and work our way through from time immemorial into what is more a matter of historical record. Now don't get me wrong, I want to talk about the Sparta in the movies, Sparta in her prime the straight-talking, six-pack-wielding, spear-slinging glory-hounds of ancient Greece. Nothing but pity for those unlucky enough to have faced the Laconians on the battlefield, and worse still for those with enough temerity to stand their ground. Nothing but misery and agony for that blighted lot. Have I forgotten to mention the sheer number of Persian arrows blotting out the sun at Thermopylae? Not only an innovative way to escape the hot Greek sun, which as the saying goes the Spartans appreciated immensely, it's also an allegorical tale that so beautifully encapsulates posterity's perception of Spartan valour. Indeed, that same valour captured the imagination of antiquity in every bit and equal measure to our own today. That, however, is a story for another time, but far from saving the best for last, I believe the earlier, Bronze Age story to be equally compelling. It was an age where the shroud between legend and reality was gossamer thin and a little of each leaked into the other a time when the Olympian gods still walked amongst mankind and we were but a pawn in their fickle game of pride. It seems fanciful to us now, thousands of years later, but the Greeks of the classical and Hellenistic periods believed the legend of Troy as relative fact. It was even said that Alexander the Great slept with a copy of Homer's Iliad under his pillow. For the purpose of this podcast series, the time frame can be roughly divided into four separate parts. The Late Bronze Age, running from let's say 1650 to 1100 BCE, this is the period the trozen legend comes out of. Then came the Dark Age which spanned the years from 1100 to 800 BCE. Dark because when the predominant civilization of the Bronze Age collapsed the written word was lost and the archaeology points to a massive decentralization of population and culture. Next, the Archaic Age takes us from 800 to around 500 BCE and saw the foundation of the many varied political systems of the coming age, the spread of Greek culture across the Mediterranean and the codifying of religious and political practices within said culture. The creation of the Greek alphabet during this period helped bond it all together across vast distances. The last phase that will concern these episodes is the classical age which in turn finishes with the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE. It was a time of the independent polis or city-state and the flourishing of what we today refer to as the classical period, a time of tyranny, oligarchy, and democracy, of philosophy, comedy, and tragedy. The laws observed by the Greek cities of the archaic and classical ages, along with the religious and cultural practices, were heavily influenced by our only two literary sources that transcend the Dark Age and offer us complete works to study today. Homer and Hesiod, are considered to be the fathers of epic Greek poetry. Composing their works in the unrhyming dactylic hexameter verse, that is two short syllables followed by one long one. They rise above anything that came after them, as all that followed took lead from the traditions spelled out in their legendary tales. Hesiod was born and lived in a small town in the province of Boeotia, to the northwest of Athens. The son of a failed maritime trader, he has two works that have survived the ravages of time and come down to us largely complete. The Theogony, a work relating to the Olympian gods and their genealogy, and The Works and Days which combines a farmer's instruction manual with some metaphoric lessons for Hesiod's own brother, with whom he's caught up in an inheritance lawsuit. Whilst of inestimable value, they are of little to this episode, so we'll be leaving them here for the moment. After I finish this series of episodes on Homer's Greeks, we'll be coming back to Hesiod, as I believe he gives an insight into the formation of the Greek pantheon and culture during the Dark Age of Greek history. He'll be a great help through that phase in painting a picture of the Greece, and more importantly the Sparta that emerged from the Dark Age into the archaic and classical phase. Homer, unlike Hesiod, is not an easy person to define as an individual, or even to confirm that he existed at all. However, his importance to classical Greek culture cannot be overstated. To establish its importance, I'd like to draw a parallel between Homer's works and those of the various prophets in the Abrahamic tradition, David, Jesus, and Muhammad. The Torah, Bible, and Qur'an respectively all come down to us from a near-mythical past of which there is little other contemporary evidence we can use to verify the events spoken of within their hallowed covers. Nonetheless, for a long time and for a great many people these works were taken, forgive the pun, as gospel. So much so that for a time, and in some cases this is still true, merely questioning the veracity of the Prophet's teachings would be considered heresy and punishable by death. Post the Enlightenment era of the Renaissance, which was caused primarily by the rediscovery of ancient Greek texts, we can look at these works in the cold light of day and apply reason and science to them without fear of reprisal, for the most part. To the Greeks of the Classical era, the Iliad and the Odyssey were of no less importance than the aforementioned scriptures. Greeks at the time of the Persian invasion and the Spartans' famous and failed stand against them could and would be executed for failing to adhere to the teachings of the gods. Notoriously, the famous Athenian philosopher Socrates was forced to commit suicide by a vote of his city's fickle democracy for practising and promoting beliefs considered heresy. These beliefs were handed down by the epic cycle of works attributed to Homer and Hesiod. The scripture's overarching message is that in order to receive God's love, you must honour, respect and obey his laws. The heroes of Troy are constantly invoking the Olympian god's favour through sacrifice and honour. Like Agamemnon in Book 1 of the Iliad, those who fail to respect the gods invite misery and mayhem into their lives. Aside from that, around the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, the Greek mainland experienced a period of massive population increase, which in turn caused many to leave their homeland in search of new places to immigrate to. This time, known as the colonisation phase, stretched Greek culture from the western end of the Mediterranean to the northern shores of the Black Sea. It was Homer's stories... Written down in the emerging alphabet, and the legend and lessons they provided that bound these far flung people together into what we call today ancient Greek civilization. Presently, we still feel the influence of the legend of Troy, and sayings like the Trojan horse and an Achilles' heel are a part of our modern vernacular. Modern marketing isn't to be left out either, with a popular brand of male contraceptive known as the Trojan. The think tank that cooked up that name obviously didn't dig too deeply into the myths, as unlike the walls of Troy, The assumption is that their product can't be breached. Anyway, staying on task, Hesiod leaves key indicators within his writings as to the time and the place of the events he describes, and in particular, that he himself is the author. We get no such clarity from the epics of Homer. He too has two works that have come down to us, but unlike Hesiod, to attribute these works to Homer directly would be erroneous at best. Archaeologists, etymologists and historians generally agree that Homer's epics are not composed by the same person. Also, each epic alone is constructed by a group of poets rather than the one person. And this creation took place organically, with each generation of poet adding to it over a span of up to 800 years. This leads us to what I see as the clearest distinction between Hesiod and Homer. The former was composing his works as the Hellenic world was coming out of the Dark Ages, when for the first time in half a millennium the written word had returned. Hesiod may have even written down his works personally. The latter, however has been merely attributed to the final draft of an oral history that had been developed over centuries into the Trojan legend. Having lived in Turkey for a couple of years and having visited Troy on numerous occasions, it never ceased to amaze me how insignificant the place seemed. How could such a small place warrant or survive a siege of ten years? But like all good stories, they get bigger and better with the telling. But scratch a little at the surface and there is more than one kernel of truth buried in those legendary works. Perhaps this Homer wasn't mythical at all. He might have been one of the many bards travelling the countryside telling the tales of Troy. His particular version may just have been the most popular, and when the alphabet came into use had the honour of being the one written down and preserved for the future. Some say he was a blind poet, and no fewer than five Greek cities claimed that he was born in them. We will never know for sure, and the question of whether an individual like Homer existed isn't an issue in the scheme of things. The debate over the historicity of his works is almost as old as the epics themselves, so much so that a Greek philosopher known as Xenophanes of Colophon was criticising the works as little as 150 years after them being written down. The fact is that without Homer, we have nothing readily available to help us understand the Bronze Age Greeks, other than the archaeology of the period. So just to be clear, there was, and there wasn't, a Homer. Homer. On the other hand, it can be of little doubt that the Iliad and the Odyssey transmit history at least in part from the Mycenaean period into the modern era. In the Iliad, there are several markers in the text that can be used to date its creation. For example, there is a scene described of Odysseus being armed by a compatriot named Merionis before he heads out on a nighttime raid against the Trojans. In it, Odysseus is given by Meriones a family heirloom in the form of a helmet encrusted with the tusks of wild boars. Such items were a common accessory of Mycenaean nobility and have been found in gravesites dating to the Late Bronze Age. Such objects were not known to be in production in the later classical age of Greek history. That Odysseus was being equipped with such an item proves that at least in that part the story is already an ancient one. Moreover, in Book 2 of the Iliad, which is known as the Catalogue of Ships, Homer sets out for the listener the different cities contributing ships and men to the conflict of Troy. Our resident king of the Spartans... Menelaus is recorded as having sent 60 ships for the retrieval of his errant queen. That aside, many of the cities listed as having sent an attachment to battle the Trojans were destroyed or depopulated during the closing phase of the Bronze Age, never to be rebuilt. Some have only recently been rediscovered in the last century or so. A prime example of this is the ancient city of Pylos, the capital of Nesta, Agamemnon's wizened advisor. A place destroyed and depopulated during the collapse of the Mycenaean era almost unknown in the classical phase of ancient Greece, and rediscovered through archaeology in the mid-20th century. As there weren't a lot of old maps lying around in the 7th century BCE, or tour guides to helpfully point things out, we can safely assume that these place names too were handed down from an earlier period. Forgotten for almost 3,000 years, they nonetheless were remembered by the Iliad. For those just mentioned, and other reasons, the works attributed to Homer are of significant importance to anyone studying Bronze Age Greece. The Iliad. Taken from the Greek name for Troy, Ilion, and the Odyssey, the story of the eponymous character's return home from the war itself, and the trials and tribulations he was put through to get there. I'd like to introduce them both, briefly, now. The book's opening lines set the scene for the listener with the story's premise. In the Iliad, Homer says to begin, Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Archaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighters' souls, but made their bodies carrion, feasts for the dogs and birds. And the will of Zeus was moving towards its end. Begin, Muse, when the two first broken clashed, Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and brilliant Achilles. The common perception has the story of Paris and Helen at the centre of the Iliad. The 2004 movie Troy may have had something to do with this. But as you can see by this first passage, neither of them, nor Menelaus are mentioned. It is Agamemnon and Achilles who are preponderant. When the two first broke and clashed is the key line to the story of this epic work and along with rage form the central tenets of the tale. The break occurs in the ninth year of the war and it's at this precise moment that the story begins. During the years leading up to that point, the Greeks, we are told, have been waging a series of campaigns against allied cities in the neighbourhood of Troy. In one such battle, An Archaean force led by Achilles attacked and destroyed the nearby town of Linersus. The queen of Linersus was Priseis, who after watching her city burn, her king and husband killed in the fighting along with three of her brothers, had the inglorious fate of being carried off as war booty by the architect of her people's and family's demise. Also in Linersus at the time of its fall was the daughter of the Trojan head priest, Apollo, a woman named Chryseis. She too was taken back as a prize to the Greek camp, where by popular vote she was given to Agamemnon as a slave. He remarked that she was even more beautiful than his own wife, Clytemnestra, who was waiting back in Mycenae for her faithless husband to return. It was due to the beauty of Chryseis that despite her father's repeated attempts for ransom, Agamemnon refused to part with her. The father then turned to his patron deity, Apollo, for assistance, but even then the Greek king would not be moved. The Olympian gods were not known for their patience, and after Apollo sent a plague to the Greek camp, decimating the troops, Criseus was promptly returned to her family. Having been stripped of his own prize, Archimenmon now turned to Briseus, who was a highly prized possession of Achilles by this point. He even went so far to say that she was like a wife to him now. But commanded to give her up, and angry at the dishonour brought upon him by the great king, Achilles retired to his tent and refused to fight the Trojans. He even contrived with his immortal mother to have Zeus remove his favour from the Archeans and support the Trojans instead. Without their hero to fight alongside of, and without the support of the gods, things go very poorly for the Greeks. It will take the constant persuasion of a host of Archaean heroes, and the death of his best friend, to make him rejoin the fight and fulfil his destiny. Prophetically, in Book 19, line 60 of the Iliad, Homer has Achilles tell Agamemnon that he believes the Greeks will long remember the strife between the two of them. But finally, rejoin the fight he did, drag Hector away on his chariot too. The rest is legend. That's the fundamental story at the heart of the Iliad. The rage of Achilles and how it was redirected. Whilst the love triangle of Helen, Paris and Menelaus is important, it is merely a stage upon which the son of Peleus etches his name into the annals of history. As for the second work, the Odyssey opens with... Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy, and where he went, and who he met, the pain he suffered in the storms at sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed to keep them safe, poor fools. They ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from home. The complicated man mentioned in the first line is Odysseus himself. But this is simply how the ancient Greek has been translated, and it seems to have given scholars a bit of a hard time in that the five different translations I've seen has never been the same twice. The ancient Greek word is polytropos, which is an amalgamation of two words, poly, meaning many, and tropos, meaning turns or twists. The word as discussed has many translations, and I believe this was something intended by the epics composer, the man of twists and turns, the wanderer. He, of many ways and a complicated man, are all reasonable ways of translating Polythropos for Odysseus was all of these things. The story picks up ten years after the city of Troy was destroyed on Odysseus's island home of Ithaca, situated to the west of mainland Greece. His son, Telemachus, is twenty years old now, having been just a babe when his father left for Troy. He, along with his mother Penelope, had been waiting for Odysseus's return from the Trojan War and have thus far affected to avoid the advances of 108 unwanted suitors who descended on Ithaca to attempt gaining Penelope's hand in marriage. As we see towards the end of the book, Penelope is every bit as polytropos as Odysseus himself, though being a gender-sensitive language, she would be Polytropee in Greek. This is due to her ability in thwarting the advances of so many interested parties, though she could do little to stop them plundering the wealth of her husband's lands. It is to this scene that the goddess Athena appears and convinces Telemachos to go searching for news of his father. He travels via ship to the Peloponnese and visits many of the people his father fought with at Troy. Most interestingly, he meets with Nestor in Pylos, and then Helen and Menelaus in Sparta, who are not only reconciled but ruling once more as king and queen. When I first read the Iliad as a 19-year-old I remember my disappointment in not reading the story of the Trojan horse within its pages. But it is to Telemachos, in the Odyssey, that the story is first told by Menelaus. The Spartan king tells the story about the construction of the wooden horse and the subsequent plan to take the city. Both Helen and her king commiserate with the son of Odysseus that his father has yet to return from Troy. From each of these figures from the Trojan War, he learns of his father's activities during the war, but not what has befallen him since. Telemachos then decides to return home, and in fact Athena had only sent him away for protection as the aforementioned suitors had decided to have him killed. The second part of the book finally picks up with the hero of the story Odysseus, who for the last seven years has been living with the goddess Calypso as her lover and consort. She continually offers him the prize of immortality. He, however, is still dreaming of a homecoming and a return to his family. Homecoming is very much a central theme to the Odyssey, and nostos, the Greek word for it, gives birth to our modern term, nostalgia. In the background, Athena has been working tirelessly and finally convinces Zeus to allow Odysseus to return home. From that point, the story flows through to the long-awaited return of the king to Ithaca and, in parts, Odysseus becomes the bard of the tale, explaining to people along the way who he is, where he has been and what he has done. Not all of his stories are true, but we must remember he is the complicated man and always has an agenda. That of Nostos. Odysseus eventually returns home and with the help of Athena, his son Telemachus, and a pig herder, he slaughters all 108 shooters and returns to the arms of his long-suffering wife. The story finishes with the gods persuading all the people that now want to kill Odysseus for the, all the death his travels caused to let go of their anger so that the vicious cycle of revenge isn't perpetuated, as the families of all of Odysseus's men are angry that none of them returned, and all those of the slaughtered shooters want to avenge their sons, regardless of how justified the killing was. Thus ends the story of Homer's final epic, and my heavily paraphrased look into them. I intend to go into them both in greater detail in later episodes, as they are crucial to the story I want to tell of the two most important Spartans of the Bronze Age, Helen and Menelaus. But for now, it is enough to establish who Homer was, or wasn't, and the premise of his compositions. Thanks so much for joining me, dear listeners. I happily extend you all an invitation to the next episode of the Spartan History Podcast, Agamemnon's people, where we'll dive into who the Spartan people of the Bronze Age were and look at Mycenaean culture in feature. Take good care, and speak soon. That was fun. Apologies about the joke on certain brands of male contraceptives, but I just couldn't resist. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. Enjoy the outro and see you next time.